Well, today we move into the next chapter of Revelation, which is chapter 15. Very short chapter. We'll be finishing it today, Lord willing. And uh, so we're really moving through this great book. We'll be finishing it uh, at the end of the year, hopefully, or maybe one or two Sundays into the new year. Uh, Chapter 15 is filled with uh, a glaring mystery. It seems to be both the conclusion of the series on of seven visions that we've been going through, which started in chapter 12 and 13 and 14, but also the introduction to the next section, the seven bowls, which follow in chapter 16. Now, we would expect to read about the seventh vision next, because we've been reading about the six visions up to this point. We expect the seventh vision would come next, and then to read the introduction to the next seven, the seven bowls of God's wrath that are poured out upon the earth. But for some reason, the two get intertwined like trees that grow up side by side and become sort of the same tree but still distinct from one another in some ways. It starts with one verse which introduces seven angels with seven plagues as if the previous section has already finished. And then in verses 2 and through 4, it goes back and gives us the seventh vision that we've been waiting for. But after this one verse introduction to the next section of the seven bowls. And then after this little vision in 2 through 4, in verse 5, it returns back to the introduction of the seven bowls. So let's read it and you'll see. Revelation 15, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what happened, I'm sorry, and I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sang and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord? and glorify your name. For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. 
And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. So as I said, today we're concluding a section of the book of Revelation, which began in chapter 12. And before this section, we had seen the section on the 12, the opening of the 12 seals in 6-1 to 8-1, followed by the blowing of the seven trumpets in 8-2 to 11-18. But the section that we're finishing today, though it's not explicitly numbered, contains a series of visions, six up to this point, and they're all introduced by the same Greek expression, Adon, which means and I saw. Because of the seven seals and the seven trumpets as well as the seven letters to the seven churches which came even before that we've been led to expect seven visions here as well. And so when we come to 15.1 and it begins with the same Greek expression Kai Adon and I saw, we think everything's on track. But then suddenly it gets very confusing. The second verse also starts with Kai Adon and begins a description of just the kind of vision we were expecting to find as the seventh vision. And then when we get down to when we finish that after 4 and turn to verse 5 the introductory vision of the seven bulls that, which had begun in verse 1 continues well, let's look at it backwards to help us understand it better let's start with chapter 16 and then come back into 15 chapter 16 is about the seven bowls of God's wrath being poured out upon the earth. It goes through one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. That's the whole chapter. And it begins in verse 1 of chapter 16. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Now these seven angels and the seven bowls. These are the same bowls mentioned two verses earlier in 15.7. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God. And these in verse 7 are the same seven angels with seven plagues mentioned the verse before in verse 6 and the same seven angels with the seven plagues then in verse 1. They're all the same angels which have seven plagues which turn out, those seven plagues turn out to be the seven bowls of God's wrath to pour out on the earth. So verse 1 of chapter 15 is indeed an introduction to the seven bowls. So how can we explain this? Why would the introduction of the next section of Revelation 
begin before the section before it actually ends. How can we explain it? Maybe this vision in 15, 2 to 4 isn't actually the seventh vision we're waiting for. Maybe there are only six visions here. Or maybe the first of the two halves of the first vision in chapter 12 are really two different visions. That doesn't really work either. For three reasons. First of all, in chapter 12, where there's a long vision that has two halves, the second part, the second half doesn't begin with Kai Adan, which is the signal that a new one of these visions is beginning. Second of all, because the, the vision in 15.2-4 that we are looking at is a perfect vision in that it fits in with a pattern of the seventh seal and the seventh trumpet being about the final celebration of the victory and the deliverance. And third, because the vision in 2 to 4 doesn't fit in with the introduction of the seven bowls at all. There's no corresponding things. There's no seven angels, there's no seven bowls. It's a completely different scene. The, the two don't overlap except in, in, in the fact that they follow each other, but there's no overlap in content between the two. Well, maybe someone thinks, well, maybe they just got the order mixed up. If we just take verse 1 and stick it after verse 4, then it looks like it makes perfect sense. And it sort of does. But we can't just go around switching the order of Scripture. The order is inspired by God just like the words are. Now, the chapter and the verse divisions are not inspired. They came much later. And the order of the books in the Bible is not inspired because, you know, there are different times of history where they were ordered in different ways. So why, but the order of the flow of the argument and the, verse and the order of the words is inspired. So why is it written this way? Well, as I've said before, whenever you find something like this in Scripture, you're probably, you have probably stumbled onto a mysterious treasure. And so it is here. This passage, God is drawing our attention to something through this, something pretty wonderful. So here's the way I'm going to approach this. First, I want to talk about the seventh vision, completing the series of seventh visions that we've been going on. And then we're going to talk about the introduction to the seven bowls. And then we're going to talk about why they come to us in such a weird order. Okay, so first of all, the seventh vision, which is verses 2 to 4. We'll skip over first one for now. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also, those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass, with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, 
saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord the, God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Well, just like the seventh seal and the seventh trumpet... The seventh vision is a scene of final worship after the final redemption of God has been accomplished. The people of God who have conquered the beast and his allies are playing harps and singing in ecstatic songs of praise to God. But there are a couple other very interesting things here as well. Things which link this vision to the story of the Exodus. And that's a really important link for us to get if we're going to grasp what's going on in this passage. Remember the Exodus when God delivered the Israelites from Pharaoh and the Egyptians through the Red Sea and they worshipped on the other side. Now the most obvious thing that connects this vision with that story is that in this vision the people are said to sing the song of Moses the servant of God as well as the song of the Lamb now the song of Moses was the song that the Israelites sang on the other side of the sea after God had delivered them and destroyed the Egyptians it makes a lot of sense to us, of course, that the believers would be singing the song of the Lamb. But why does this vision have these Christian believers, after they've been delivered from their enemies, singing the song of Moses? Well, maybe they use the words of the song of Moses in their worship. Well, if you think that, you'd be wrong. This song actually bears little resemblance to the song of Moses in Exodus 15. The only reasonable theory of why this song is called the song of Moses as well as the song of the Lamb is because God wants to connect these two stories in our minds. God's great victory at the end of history and God's great victory on behalf of his people Israel in the Exodus God wants us to put these two stories together. And once we do that, a number of other things fall into place as well. First of all, the sea of glass mingled with fire in verse 2. Now this isn't talking about a sea made of glass, but a sea that is so still that it looks like glass. The sea of glass here symbolizes the still, calmed Red Sea after the battle is over, after it has destroyed the enemy. All through the Old Testament, you remember that the, the sea represents the evil nations and the powers of darkness. And this continues in the book of Revelation. For instance, in 13.1, the beast comes out of the sea. 
And in 2120 and 21.1, at the end, when there's a new heavens and new earth, it says there will no longer be any sea. So in this seventh vision of this final day, the sea of glass seems to represent the troubled powers of the sea calmed by God's mighty hand, which has defeated the creatures which stir up the sea. But what about the fire? Well, all through the book of Revelation, Fire signifies the judgment of God upon the wicked. So the sea of glass mixed with fire seems to mean that the sea of glass is the place the Lamb has just destroyed the beast. Just like the lake of fire is the place into which the devil, the beast, the false prophet, the people of the beast, and death itself are eventually thrown in Revelation 20. Now, let's talk about the introduction to the seven bowls of wrath. In verse 1 and then 5 through 8. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, and for with them the wrath of God is finished. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures came to the seven angels, I'm sorry, gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. So just a number of things here quickly. We have angels clothed in pure bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests, given seven golden bowls. So clearly we're talking about angels fulfilling a priestly function in the temple, in God's heavenly sanctuary. Second of all, we see the sanctuary filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. Very similar to Isaiah 6, the vision of Isaiah, where he sees that the temple is filled with the glory of God, with the smoke of the glory of God. And um, so we see God's glory cloud, how he manifests itself in the Old, Te- in the Old Testament and even into the New, like on the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, filling the temple where he lives. Finally, thirdly, we see it says no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. So these seven bowls that are going to be described in chapter 16 are to be fulfilled before anyone will be allowed to enter the heavenly temple. In other words, all seven bowls will be fulfilled before the time when the saints will be welcomed into the new Jerusalem. Now, some have taken verse 1, which where it ref, when it refers to seven plagues, which are the last, as meaning that these visions of trouble being poured out upon the earth are sequential. That is, that one will be fulfilled, and then the next, and the next, and that these ones are the ones that will be fulfilled last. 
however, most likely, last here, simply refers to the order they're given in the book of Revelation. Not the order they'll to be, they are to be fulfilled in history. So these are the last set, and indeed they are. We've had the, uh, the seals, we've had the trumpets, we've had the visions, now we have the bowls, and that's the last of the sevens. And consistent with the Exodus connection we talked about a minute ago, here, the heavenly temple, which has been, you know, the common language, even go back to uh, a few verses earlier in 14, 15, and 14, 15, and 17, you find angels coming out of the temple. But here it says the angels come out of the tent of witness. Now, you know that in the Old Testament, first they were given a tabernacle in the wilderness where God would dwell with them. And then once they were in the land, established in the land through King Solomon and through David's preparations, a great temple was built. So, um, and of course in its heavenly form, the heavenly temple, the heavenly tabernacle, the same thing. But here it's called the tent of witness instead of called the temple. Again, probably because it's trying to draw attention to the experience of the Israelites in the wilderness as opposed to just the general experience of God's people, which was mostly during the years of the temple. But why is it called the tent of witness? Well, in the Old Testament, the tabernacle was called the tent of witness because the witness was the Ten Commandments, which were kept in the tabernacle, in the uh, Ark of the Covenant. And it's the tent of witness, or the tent of testimony. This was God's word. This was God's message to us. In the book of Revelation, though, the word witness or testimony means the message of Christ. So this seems to incorporate both of them. Both gospel and law here referred to as the place where the angels are coming out of the tent of witness or testimony. Okay, now the difficult question. Why are these two interlocked and intertwined? And of course, uh, you know, I teach these things, but I every once in a while I need to exp tell you that I don't, it's not like I come up with this stuff. Um, you know, much smarter people than me who spend their lives studying the Bible and interacting with others and reading uh, many writings of people that have interacted with this stuff down through the ages, they come up with great insights. Sometimes those insights are, don't seem very reasonable, and, but other times it's like, wow, that's amazing, that must be it. And um, it's such a privilege to live 2,000 years or so after the scriptures were begun to be to have all of these uh, this powerful body of knowledge that's been passed down through the generation. And uh, you know, this is the, uh, Bible study is not something that we do just individually. It's something that we do as a body of Christ. And God has given the church a role in that through the gift of teaching. So anyway, so 
how do these two things fit together? Why are they intertwined like this? Why does the second one begin before the first one ends? We saw how the seventh vision in 2 to 4 portrays the worship of God's people in heaven after the judgment day when God delivers his people from the hands of their foes and destroys their enemies and how the text connects it to what God did with the Israelites and the Egyptians at the Red Sea. That's why it's called the Song of the Moses and the Song of the Lamb. We also saw that this seems to be why the people of God are standing beside the Sea of Glass. Basically the Red Sea, representing what God has done in finishing this great redemption. So what does this have to do with the seven bowls? Why does God intertwine the introduction of the seven bowls with the seventh vision? Well, the seven bowls of wrath are actually very similar to the ten plagues which God brought upon Egypt. In fact, six of the seven of the bowls have a direct correspondence to the ten plagues God brought upon Egypt. Second of all, the first four seals, when we went through those, the first four seals and then the first four trumpets, they were about the tribulations that God has brought upon this earth in this age. But the fifth, sixth, and seventh seals and trumpets were about things leading up to the end or at the end. But Unlike the seven seals and the seven trumpets and the seven visions for that matter, all seven of the bowls seem to be talking about troubles brought upon the earth in this present age. So unlike the seals and the trumpets and visions, the seven bowls do not have a great climactic scene of victory and celebration. So, by using this clever intertwining literary device, the seven bowls are here tied to the final victory and celebration of the seventh vision which comes before them. As you're reading it, it's as if the vision of the Song of Moses and the Sea of Glass provoke a flashback you know, you see what's going on in the, uh, the Red Sea celebration and you remember the story of what's happened before that and that's what the seven bowls are. You go back, you go see the scene and then it goes back over the history of what it was like before this scene. The bowls go back in time to explain the woes of our age. The age which comes before the culmination of the story that's described here in the vision in 2 to 4. So, the seventh vision of Revelation 15, 2 to 4 seems to serve double duty. It's the concluding and climactic vision in the series of seven visions, but it's also the beginning of and part of the introduction of the series of the seven bowls. Now, the linking of this final vision 
with the story of the Exodus that we've talked about suggests that what has happened in the past, in our age, and what is coming in our future will mirror what happened to Israel in Egypt. Now just as God raised up Moses, so he raised up Jesus to deliver his people from their bondage. Just as God brought plagues against Egypt, so God is now bringing plagues against this world. Just as Pharaoh increasingly persecuted the Israelites as the end drew near, so the unholy trinity of serpent, beast, and false prophet will do so as the end of this age draws near. Just as God parted the waters of the Red Sea, delivering his people and destroying the enemy in one fell swoop, so at some point in the future there will be a spectacular intervention of God to rescue his people and to destroy their enemies. Just as the exodus ended with a dramatic explosion of worship among God's people, so after our deliverance, our story will end with a spontaneous and exuberant celebration of God on the last day. And so what is the point of this for us today? God, I would argue, gives us this vision to help us learn to live today in the hope of this final day. As God's people, we might be struggling now. And maybe I almost put, we are struggling now. But I didn't want to discourage those who feel like they're not struggling yet at this particular moment. But basically, life is... The struggle is not a stranger to the Christian life. But as we struggle, if we hold on to Christ, one day we will be overtaken with a pure and unbridled joy we've never experienced before. Revelation 15, when you're reading along through the book of Revelation, is a real curveball in the flow of the book. But that's the way life works too. We really like it when everything flows along in a smooth and understandable way. But every once in a while there's a train wreck which makes no sense to us at all. It feels all wrong. Nothing seems to fit. And as we stand there surveying this train wreck, it's tempting to doubt the Lord. Is he really in control? Is he really making all things work together for my good? These are the times that test men's faith. And in these moments, we must remember this vision and others like it. It reminds me of the story, I think I've told it once before, of the couple who sat in front of their doctor's desk and were told that the husband had terminal cancer and probably only had another year to live. And as they stumbled out of their office and got into their car and sat in shocked silence for a moment, finally the man said, 
Nothing has changed. God is still on His throne. He is still doing all things for our good. He is still our provider and our protector. We're still His beloved children who will one day be received into the loving arms of our Heavenly Father. You see, joy is not the result of the right circumstances. Joy is the result of the right interpretation of the circumstances. Joy does not come as a result of forgetting about our trials today. It comes as a result of seeing God's hand in the trials of today. If we see things as God sees them, of course, we'll know that joy now. And to whatever extent we do see them, we can taste His joy in our lives. In this vision, the saints are pictured as standing by the sea, praising God for His victory. The very place of their trial became the place of their triumph. The very place of their suffering became the place of their celebration. All those years of suffering, all those years of agony, of crying out, all those years of praying and waiting, while the enemy scoffed, But now it's crystal clear. He was listening. He was watching. He was with his people through it all. Now the tables have been turned. And the humble have been exalted. Now the ones who have trusted are the ones who have triumphed. And the ones who have prayed are the ones who have prevailed. The ones who have waited are the ones who have won. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we talk often about how Americans live as though America is the whole world. But an even greater problem is that we as Christians live as though our little world is all there is. As if right now, between now and the day we lay our head down in death, this is our life. When in reality, this is just the beginning. This is just the preparation. Lord, it's so easy for us to lose sight of this. You tell us to keep our minds fixed on the things above where Christ is. But it's so easy to have our minds fixed instead on the things we can see. The things which bump into us and and, uh, the things we stub our toe on. Oh Lord, We want to be faithful 
We want to be those who wait and who rest in your promises, who pray and who trust that you are with them. We want to be those who conquer, dear Lord, and are exalted at the end. We know that the only one who can work this in us is your spirit. We thank you that the one who has begun this good work will go on developing it until the day of Christ Jesus. We pray that you would. In our weakness, O Lord. Thank you now for the privilege of coming to the table of our Lord. Meet us here, O Lord, for we need you. We need to be fed by you. We need to be strengthened by you. We need the lives. And as we go forth from this place, dear Lord, may we remember that you are with us. So, Father, meet us in the sacrament. Show us your son Jesus anew. Remind us of what he has done for us upon the cross. Remind us for the great banquet that we talked about at the beginning of our service, to which we've been invited and which one day we will attend. And the joy that we will have at that time. We pray in Jesus' name.